Welcome to another episode of Sweet Valley Online, where evil triplets come together to snark Sweet Valley twins and explore the darkness that lurks just beneath the surface of Sweet Valley. We recap three Sweet Valley Twins books each month. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes at sweetvalley.online. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Our music is provided by Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast. You could contact him at taylorstuart602 at gmail.com if you want to commission your own music. All of this information will be in the show notes. I'm Wing. I'm new to reading Sweet Valley Twins, and I hate everything Wakefield. I'm here with my not-so-evil triplets, Dove and Raven. I'm Dove, and I love this series even though I hate it. I'm Raven. I did love this series, but after the book I read this week, I think they can all go die in a fire. I'm so glad everyone else has joined my hatred. <laughs> this month, we recapped One of the Gang, Buried Treasure, and Keeping Secrets. One of the Gang is a very special episode where we learn that being disabled is just like having a sprained ankle. We follow Jessica after she injures her ankle while idiotically teasing her brother. Can't be bothered to explain why, but she's on crutches for the duration of this book. At the same time, we meet Pamela Jacobson, who has an unnamed heart condition, which makes her tired and unable to participate in the more physical activities. And this is a heartwarming tale of Jessica pretending she's disabled for a bit and reaping all the benefits of pretending to care about the disabled while actually just being a self-serving cunt. Oh, I really didn't mean to say that. (laughs) We have a title for the podcast. That's going to be great. It's such a terrible word over here. Was that the end of your summary then? <laughs> Pretty much. That was like the crux of the book, wasn't it? That's the crux of the series from so far, my <laughs> takeaway. In Buried Treasure, Jessica, Unicorn Ellen, and Ellen's little brother, Mark, find a box buried in Ellen and Mark's backyard. There are old love letters contained in it and $200. Jessica and Ellen immediately hide the money for Mark because they are both bags of dicks. They then go on wild spending sprees. Subtle. And also, at $100 each, not really a great spending spree. But this ghost writer forgot that almost all of the families in Sweet Valley are rich and spoil their kids. Anyway, these scare quotes spending sprees lead to their scare quotes downfall because some money for a class trip turns up missing at the same time. And eventually, everyone thinks that Ellen and Jessica stole it. And that's why they're being so secretive about where they got their money for their new things. In the end, they tell the truth, and all is forgiven by everyone for some ungodly reason, even though they really did steal money from someone. Ellen's mother is the only one who actually cares about that. Everyone else is just relieved that they didn't steal money from their classmates, because fuck everyone else. Class trip money turns out to have just been misplaced by the teacher. The granddaughter of the owner of the treasure box turns up and collects the letters, which helps her make a big decision in her own love life, conveniently, and gives the money to Ellen and Jessica as a reward, and everything is wrapped up in a neat fucking bow. And then, there's really unsubtle hints for Ned Wakefield that he has a big secret he's going to tell his daughters about. And holy shit, having read the next book, that is the shittiest secret ever. (laughs) This week, I read Keeping Secrets. Daddy Wakefield has a secret to share with the twins, his own made-up language called Ithig. 
At first, the twins are sceptical, but they soon come to enjoy talking absolute gibberish to each other. Daddy W. has sworn them to secrecy, and when Caroline Pierce tells the entire school of their new talent for talking bollocks after overhearing them in a restaurant, the school year goes apeshit. Amy and Amy hates Elizabeth for not sharing the secret, and Jessica faces the wrath of Lila for similar ludicrous reasons. Naturally, Jessica caves first, and soon the entire sixth grade are in on the secret. They plan to use their newfound secret to befuddle and bewitch a substitute teacher who is looking to gain full-time employment at Sweet Valley High. Elizabeth wonders whether to warn the teacher, but is spared this dilemma of conscience when Teach figures the trick to Ithig all by herself, proving once and for all that she is far too good to join the Sweet Valley Middle School staff because she is not a colossal cock-end. Everyone forgives everyone else for being asshats. Daddy W apologises for putting his daughters in a tricky spot. The substitute becomes the permanent... And probably some other bullshit happens, but I've completely lost the will to live at this point, because Ithid can fuck right off. So, Raven, did you enjoy the book? I did not enjoy the book. My God, it was the biggest waste of time I have ever encountered. To be fair, we should probably do this chronologically. So, of course, of course. I will now expand on one of the gang a bit more, rather than just using shocking swearing, because it's funny. I, I did not like one of the gang but i did specifically ask for it because having had a disability that prevented me from joining in with activities i could sort of i thought i was best placed out of the three of us to uh do it basically um for those of you who didn't read the 85 page document i prepared in my uh recap explaining my disability i had a dislocated hip when i was born they didn't notice it until i was walking and it had a detrimental effect on the actual construct of the hip, bowl and socket. And therefore, I've had, I walk with a limp, it's painful, blah, blah, blah. Um, I can't run very fast, that kind of thing. So I couldn't do the physical activities. Like if they were doing cross-country running, I'd be the person who was barely over the start when the school athlete had finished her eight-mile run and things like that. And also, my school didn't believe it was a real disability. I was basically told if it was a real disability, you'd be in a wheelchair um, with varying levels of snark and, and sympathy, depending on who was giving it. But PE teachers, not exactly known for their sympathy and certainly not in my school. So as a reader, as a child, I sort of read this and went, this would be ace in my school. But then I remembered we were English and we really don't give a shit about team activities or school sports days like we don't even get into fisticuffs with other schools over lacrosse or whatever like so we're not going to muster much energy to get into um, competition with ourselves so as a child I read it I was like this would be awesome as an adult I kind of read it and realized that Jessica is probably the most terrible human being ever I mean not that we didn't already have nine books previous of evidence of this but um yeah it was particularly galling when she kept acting like a martyr she was like oh think of the poor little disabled and the fatties and and the skinny people who can't lift heavy things and all that kind of shit and everyone's fawning all over her thinking that she's marvelous and it just made me want to set things on fire also i thought it was badly constructed um basically bunch of events pick a name out of a hat so you might get someone who's 
terrified of speaking in public who has to do a stand-up comedy routine who'd be much better suited to the bed making contest or whatever you know it, it was still bollocks it was still cluelessly written by someone who probably never met a single disabled person in their life and now i've ranted for about 45 minutes so feel free to chip in my friends uh, your rant is perfectly spot on and really well done. I do agree, even if you take away the terrible writing around disability in this, just the concept of adding more events is fine. But you're right, the fact that they're then drawing names takes away any benefit that adding events would have. Again, you're not really letting people do something or making them feel accepted and welcome, even if they're not good at stuff. Now you're just making them be bad at even more stuff, because that's exactly how it works to be inclusive. I personally actually hated most of the events that they came up with. Um, the bed making for it. I just think, really? That, that, that's a thing? Well, don't you remember, Raven, when you and I had to go to social services to prove that my congenital degenerative disability was something I was born with and getting worse? And one of the things they made us do was show them how I make the bed. And I think yeah. basically what I did was... Hun, bed needs doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I do remember that. However, that was not being held in the as a school sports activity. Uh, I understand how. I mean, we would. I don't think that the point of the school sports day was to see if anyone deserved benefits. <laughs> you know, it, it it just seemed to me that they could have come up with things that were equally inclusive to everyone that didn't involve making fucking beds. Why did they do it for a start? Did they just get four like four beds and put them in the in the, in, the, in the playground. And why have they got beds? Do they get them from Mr. Nidex? Supply closets or something. Why has the school got beds? It's like that episode of Glee where they do that advert and they get paid in mattresses. I reckon Nidex got a similar... Sk- only, I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was advertising strip clubs or something. I don't know. You know exactly what he was doing. And the yeah. next event is going to be taking the little uh, CSI light to all of yeah. them. The black light on the I mattress. Do, I do, like, if... It was intentionally adding a bed-making thing because, and I don't know for sure, but because back then uh, the bed-making was a part of a Are You Really Disabled test. I feel like that's giving the ghostwriter a lot of credit for being nuanced in the writing. I just can't believe that's actually a thing that they would have thought of to research. Looking back about the bed thing, um, in the 80s, making beds was harder than it is today because now isn't most people just have a duvet that they just fling on and it's basically line up the corners roughly and smooth down the thing. Maybe then kids were... That was the... I can't remember. I, I, I think I remember having to make a bed when I was With younger. hospital corners. Like, you had to fold it in a yeah. certain way. Like, when we go to mum's and it's got, like, yeah. 94 sheets and nine blankets and no duvet because she's like from the 20s or whenever she was born yeah i mean i will think that maybe it is maybe it is a a child's task in the house you have to do your chores you have to make your bed however in sweet valley surely it's like we will get the uh we will get the serving folk to make our beds we will get consuela to make the bed yes i chose that name deliberately of course you did. Uh, yeah, I'm suddenly just really glad I grew up in a house where we didn't have to make our beds. And I still don't believe in making my beds. So you're there. Don't people have duvets and hospital quarters? And I'm like, la, la, la. I don't know what any of that is. I mean, I do for pop culture, but I don't make beds. <laughs> yeah, but I think Ravens, before we get, you know, 45 minutes of pure bed making talk on this podcast, I think Raven's point is actually good that they could have done more activities that weren't physical and also 
I think the writer took a left at the traffic lights when she should have taken a right because she sort of got it in her head. I'm assuming she. I don't know which of the fleet it was. It sounded like she got the mission statement of we're not going to have running and we're not going to have swimming and we're not going to have jumping and anything else is fine. So Pamela in a wheelchair contest. Seriously, have, has anyone ever tried to use a wheelchair? Because I, I have. And it's fucking difficult. Uh, Raven had to push me around because my poor little arms were too knackered. So the idea that Pamela, who can't break into a brisk walk to class, she has to gently amble, raced a bloody wheelchair against Ken Matthews, the jock. I know he's very short. Ha ha. Let us make fun of the short guy. But he's still a jock. You know, he's still in shape. I'm sure he would have had a much easier time winning than Pamela apparently did. So it's my head canon that she dies because I don't think we ever see her again. Nice. Great head cannon. Way to kill people off. I do think you make a point, though, like the ghost writer, whoever it was, did not. A, understand how disabilities work or what it's like to use these tools as a disabled person. But I don't think really understood how making up events worked. Like they had a skit writing competition that they then put on the same day. That's not how skits work. These kids aren't actors out there doing improv. I mean, that just makes no sense. Especially with the roulette. If you had Elizabeth and Amy in your team, you'd think, Right, I'm going to put them on the writing side of it. But if you're playing roulette and you've got someone who can barely string two sentences together and they end up doing the skit portion, you're like, well, we're sunk. This is great. Quickly, in defense of the skit portion, I think wasn't the entire team were doing the skit. It was like, I don't think that was roulette based. I think it was the entire white team and the red team and the blue team, whatever the colours were, and they all had to come together and do a skit. I agree entirely that it didn't. It should take more than ten minutes. And I think Lila just going, I know, let's just do a skit about why bed making is fucking stupid was actually really good. I think I should have got my vote, put it that way. I mean, because we've all seen shows like, I mean, I don't know what the American equivalent is, or maybe you have it, The Krypton Factor, where there is a physical part of The Krypton Factor, but there's also like mental agility, like you're putting block puzzles together and stuff like that, or an observation round where you're shown a clip and you have to sort of say, oh, that there were definitely eight books on the bookshelf and, you know, that kind of thing. So there are other events that weren't physical and also weren't weird or didn't involve writing a play in 30 seconds. So Right, like things like memory games or playing Simon, which is a memory game, obviously. That was big in the 80s and 90s. There are tons of things they could have done that opened it more. They could have done a spelling bee. Right? Though, that's usually a separate thing. Like, they probably do have spelling bees just separate from this. But you're right, they could have incorporated into that. And a brief little aside, if the team colors weren't red, white, and blue, I would be super disappointed because way to lose a moment of being USA, Ghost Rider. Way to lose that moment. (laughs) I know there was at least a white team. I'm assuming there was also a red and blue. Other than the bad events, what else did you find completely abhorrent with the book basically jessica i mean i know that's a standard response no matter what book you pick up with the exception of evil elizabeth but the way she was she realized that all of a sudden she's on crutches because she's hurt herself taking the piss out of Stephen, and you know 
falling off a ladder couldn't have happened to a more deserving twat. But just to cut in there, I'm pretty sure Stevens probably fallen off a ladder outside Jessica's window a few times as well. <laughs> it's hard to grip that ladder with one hand, after all. Thanks, Raven. <laughs> Stay classy. Where was I going with this? Yes. Um, so she realizes that she's out of the running because she's no longer physically perfect. And so she changes the events um, to benefit the disabled, of which there is one person in Sweet Valley Middle School. You know, we're only allowed one. If Pamela Jacobson leaves town, possibly we can get a blind person in. Who knows? But it's the fact that that was sold as a good thing. I mean, I know basically you're supposed to read the book and go, oh, that Jessica, when in fact it really you should walk away from the book going, Wow, what a ruthless, self-serving cow she is. What a horrible thing to do to just make herself seem so glorious for doing a fundamentally decent thing, which she only did to benefit herself. And she knows exactly what she's doing. She even admits that she feels a little weird getting the attention when Pamela has been doing similar things. It is not getting the same. Like everyone even when they both present the idea, Jessica gets the credit for it. And in the beginning, she's not even doing any of this so much because she wants to. It's because she's finally one-upping Lila, who is supposed to be basically her best friend. And she's super excited to get attention without her. And then as soon as Lila tries to take over what she's hurt, Jessica gets even angrier. So it's all this huge competition, again, revolving around the unicorns for no good reason. If I can just um, play devil's advocate for a second on this one. Doesn't Elizabeth use what she knows of Jessica's approaches and ideas to basically manipulate Jessica into going down the path of let's be inclusive by playing on the fact that that she knows that Lila will rise against it and the way to get Jessica to do these things is to make sure that she will be center of attention by doing them that is true Elizabeth sort of gets a win for being one of the two evil twins um so does that not give justification for jessica for for being so machiavellian behind what she's planning and doing and being so transparent because jessica's being jessica because elizabeth is manipulating her to be jessica i mean i guess i'm glad that she's consistently written unlike wishy-washy elizabeth but at the same time i don't think that, that actually makes it okay i just think it makes elizabeth also awfully Machiavellian in this book, <laughs> uh, which, to be fair, is not the way they ever really credit her for. So she can be just as manipulative as her sister. And you're right, Jessica is being very true to herself, just herself as a terrible, terrible person. And also, Jessica actually gets nominated for award, a Good Citizen Award. And I particularly love this. I mean, I even flagged it in my recap. The teacher's going on and on about how wonderful Jessica and Pamela, how brilliant their work is. And then she turns to Jessica and, and singles her out, going, I'm going to put you forward for the award. And I just like to believe that Pamela just kind of sagged down into herself and just sort of went home and cried in the bath. If I, can I like put to in... believe she said, fuck off. <laughs> well, if I can put in one more time, I'm being devil's advocate on this one. Could the author here have been making a very subtle commentary on the fact that the disabled don't get the credit that they maybe deserve? Because to me, I mean that whole thing seemed ridiculous that, that Jessica was singled out for an award and Pamela wasn't even mentioned. And the fact that it was so ridiculous makes me question the motives of the writer. And maybe it was so ridiculous because you're supposed to think, hang on, that's a bit off. The fact that Pamela doesn't react to it could also make you think, well, 
maybe Pamela doesn't react to it because that's what people like Pamela, if you pardon the expression, would think when they didn't get the reward they expected because society does treat them badly. See, I can sort of get behind that, except for you use two very contentious words. Subtle and commentary. <laughs> so I'm going with no. In theory, I think yes. That's actually a, would have been a really great distinction. And I think this book could have been excellent commentary on both disability rights, but also about how uh, able-bodied people could come in and take credit for things. However, I don't necessarily know that the ghostwriters, in, even in the time they're given, have enough time to do that sort of subtle commentary. But also... I think the book supports what happened more than it criticizes it. So if the book was presenting this as this thing that is super ridiculous and it shouldn't happen, I might be more willing to believe that theory. But the book never questions Jessica or any of the Wakefields getting awards and winning things. Like it's presented as right and true throughout the series. And with them as our protagonists, it just really doesn't seem that if it is a critique, it's not a critique that's actually coming through clearly because the book seems to support that decision. And on that subject, if it was a subtle commentary, you've also got the part where Lila takes the responsibility away from Jessica because now she's incapacitated, you know, in the same way that people in wheelchairs find that their carers or whoever's wheeling them around is asked what they want to eat or drink or things like that. The way that the disabled person is regarded as not competent enough to do something and must therefore defer to an able-bodied person except for sweet valley it was just them being dicks you know bad ghostwriters i'd be more willing to accept that that was some sort of subtle commentary except i don't think it was again i don't think that the ghostwriters have enough time to put a lot of nuance into the books when they're being written and published that fast but i mean it wasn't really again that's the point where i thought the book could have been really good because that makes an excellent point but because it's all kind of couched in these terms of jessica and lila are just competitive with each other which is not necessarily held up in other books but you know each book is a brand new world basically in that sense it's not really presented as an able-bodied person trying to take something away from someone who is even temporarily disabled it's more these people are both assholes to each other and somehow still best friends (laughs) which actually also describes the three of us but in a much more understanding (laughs) and fun way i must say yeah but we've got some diversity i mean i'm disabled you're adopted you know raven is bald the other thing that i really thought could have been an interesting thing but that the book just for what it is, couldn't do much with, is how Pamela's family reacts both uh, to her going to a, quote, regular school versus uh, the special school she went to before, and to her participating in things, particularly how her older brothers really don't want her around because she's embarrassing to them uh, just by showing up in Sweet Valley. And it's a really, it could have been a really interesting commentary on, again, how people with disabilities are treated, uh, how siblings can be very complicated, all of these issues, but it's really just kind of thrown in there as this throwaway line that this is why Pamela is and is not going to school in certain places and why she's thinking about leaving and on and on. Yeah, Pamela's brother was a dick. He gets his own book, book number 40 or 41, I think it is, Denny Means Trouble. Are you kidding me? 
Uh-uh. How come he gets his own book and some of the side characters that we actually like don't get their own books? Because he's dyslexic, so we have to have a very special episode about dyslexia. Oh, so his family gets all the very special episodes, well, except for the poor person episode, but, mm. you know, whatever. Yeah, well, the Rizzo's are covering the poverty thing, so the Jacobsons are covering the um, the learning and the disability in that. How, How very thrilling. segregated of you. It's the fucking Aryan nation in Sweet Valley. Everyone's blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white skin, and rather wealthy. That's not true. The poor people are dark. They have dark olive, hair at olive, the very yeah. least. Olive skin. All right, so that sounds like it wraps up our hatred of one of the gang <laughs> and my excitement over Dove going boom so often <laughs> in her recap. So let's move on to Barry Treasure, which is less episode of the week and less interesting sadly and more pointless than one of the gang and i would have said the most pointless book out of this trio except <laughs> keeping secrets is coming soon yeah i will have to have a word about that if you think yours is pointless really. oh no i thought mine was pointless till i read yours and then it's <laughs> absolutely the most pointless book we've read yet so actually while we're bad mouthing all three books which one did we like the best i i know it's going to be like tough this is like what do you prefer having your fingers cut off your hair ripped out or your eyes poked you know but pick one which one sucked the least my favorite was buried treasure because uh it was the least offensive out of three particularly insipid books this month i completely agree i've got nothing new to say i think uh of what was least terrible buried treasure was the best of the terrible bunch but i really preferred one of the gang because i sat there the whole time waiting for them to go boom and it was glorious every time she did so my personal favorite was one of the gang okay right so we were bad mouthing what's it called what uh buried treasure buried treasure, buried treasure. the one that she liked best but can't remember the title of. <laughs> they all sucked this month it, it was a bad month part of what's wrong with buried treasure is that it's either super terrible or it's boring as hell and there's no in between. There's a whole bunch of back and forth with did Jessica and Ellen steal the class money? Did they not? Or will uh, Mark get to tell on them and have anyone believe him or will he not? And Elizabeth waffling back and forth. Is my sister a thief? Is she not? Do I trust her? Do I not? Should I tell? Should I not? So yeah, it's super boring. Uh, the worst part is of course this thread that as long as the money didn't come from the school, it's not really stealing. Or that uh, even if all these new things are showing up, that Jessica could not possibly have stolen them, which is just from the beginning bullshit. They stole money from someone in this scenario, whether or not they knew who the owner was. And just because it wasn't for their classmates doesn't make it okay, Mrs. Wakefield, as she is relieved later that it wasn't stolen from the school. The other thing is, even if you remove the money from this completely, part of what puts Elizabeth on edge and makes her wonder what's going on is that Jessica, who broke her previous Walkman, shows up with a new Walkman. And she excuses her having it by saying that she found it on a bench outside a store, brand new, in a bag with a receipt. That is still stealing, even if the money isn't a part of this. She picked up someone else's purchase and took it home. And Elizabeth would be perfectly fine with that because she doesn't consider it theft. That is still fucking stealing, and no one ever addresses that. And I'm sure in later books... When theft isn't the point of it, 
I am fairly certain there is somewhere in a later book where someone picks something up and pretty much the entire group goes, oh, should we take this to the nearest shop because someone might be looking for it? And it's just, you know, automatically understood that that is somebody's property and it is missing and we should help return it rather than this one book where it's like, oh, what, she found a brand new one? Oh, well, that's not theft. That's fine. Lucky Jessica. Oh, you're super lucky. Yeah, I just... So I could not get past that, the hypocrisy of it, which always, it's always the hypocrisy that really throws me for a loop here. But then, yeah, to have Mrs. Wakefield at the end be, and her, she actually says this, that she's relieved they didn't steal from the school. So they can steal from a stranger and from Mark because they hide the money from him. And so if they're getting to keep it because they found it, she found it too. They can steal from these people. That's fine as long as they didn't steal from their classmates. Okay, great life lesson here. Ellen's mother, thank God, is pretty much the first parent in Sweet Valley that I really, really loved for a moment. Though I guess I like Sophia's mom, too. One of the things I found annoying about this was Elizabeth's complete unwillingness to believe that that her sister could have stolen anything. When we've been with the family for, what, 10 books at this stage, 11 books at this stage, and it it's very clear from the outset that Jessa, Jessica would steal anything that wasn't nailed down if it was forwarding whatever ridiculous madcap scheme that she had in her head at any given moment. Oh, yeah, she, she'd rip out her grandmother's spleen if she felt entitled to it. Mm, yeah. In multiple books, she has stolen the shoes off of Elizabeth's feet, and yet Elizabeth can't believe that she's a thief. I don't. But that's pretty much every book... There's this some line in there somewhere that's a variation on Elizabeth couldn't believe Jessica would do such a terrible thing. You cannot say that every book, Elizabeth. The whole yeah. world believes Jessica would do that terrible thing yeah. and worse. Yeah. Sometimes, Scully, it is aliens. <laughs> Excellent reference. I mean, the thing with it as well is it's it's I think that if Jessica ever got her allowance, went to the shops and then came back with stuff that looks like she could have bought. I think a decent pair will be checking her receipts anyway because she could quite easily have shoplifted something or mugged some younger kid for it because she's just an absolute horror. You've been watching the Wrongans channel again, haven't you, about kids what kill their parents and stuff. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why we're child-free. Not not the main reason, but it's it's definitely a contributing factor, is Raven watches the Wrongans channel and keeps getting depressed by all the kids that kill their parents. It's true, it's true. 24 hours of, then he turned the, the gun on his mother and his father, or, and then the mother and the father killed the kid, and you're just like, oh, it's far too much hassle. Far too much hassle to change the channel or to have a child. I'm not sure what you mean in that statement. No, I'm not changing the channel. I need to be kept abreast of these things. <laughs> Constant vigilance. We need to know how awful children are. Okay, have we run out of nasty things to say about Buried Treasure, or have we got more? We can say some nicer things about it, because there were some nice things about the, the book. Did you not think? Were they? Yeah, it came to an end. <laughs> yes. But one of the nicest things about Buried Treasure is it was not keeping fucking secrets. Just think, as, so long as keeping secrets exists, you guys have got no chance of having to recap the worst book in the series. <laughs> that is true. One of the things that I really disliked about this book was the random very convenient appearance of the granddaughter of the person who buried the letters and buried the money or or, or something. I'm, I'll not lie, I, I wasn't particularly invested. 
Um, but they appeared. And did Jessica believe that she was a ghost? Yep, she did. That's actually my favorite part of this stupid book is that Jessica, the, the woman, young woman, walks up and Jessica is sitting there and she is freaking out because the girl looks just like the person in the picture. And oh, my God, it's a ghost. She's terrified. Please don't kill us. We'll give the money back. And the lady's just standing there like, eh. <laughs> I'm a ghost, am I? It's ridiculous. Even beyond the whole, everything must be wrapped up in a neat little bow, because this is the second book in a row I've recapped that had that sort of ending, where last time it was, I forgot the girl's name, but her Mary. mother, Mary's mother, who disappeared forever, rocks up out of nowhere and finally finds her. And this time, some random granddaughter rocks up out of nowhere and finds some money and stuff. Oh, it's ridiculous. But the fact that Jessica thinks a woman walking down the street is actually a ghost is so far the greatest moment in this series. I have to say that whole exchange wraps up so many things I hate all into one. Number one, Generation Xerox, um, where everyone looks exactly the same as their ancestors as the plot decrees. And believe me, I know the Wakefields do this because they look just like Alice, who looks just like Samantha, who looks just like Jessamine. Don't judge me. I do actually know some of their history. Um, hey, even I know their history after that. Uh, super Serials. Yeah, the Super Serials episode about it, I think. It's either Super Serials or Teen Creeps, but I got the whole rundown of their history thanks to that. Yeah, so I hate that, Generation Xerox. I hate the whole, oh, who should I marry? Like, if, if you don't know if you should marry either of them, perhaps the answer is don't marry anyone. Possibly when someone says, do you want to get married? If your instant answer isn't yes, then maybe you're not feeling it. Um, and then a letter from the past tells her what to do. Those are just three things I hate, and they all came together in the space of about eight pages just to piss me off. Came together out of nowhere. There was no real hint that this was going to rock up. There was kind of a hint that Jessica would be haunted by some sort of ghost, and I'm so mad that, that book, this book didn't actually go there. But Dove has reassured me that there will be a ghost in the future, which is exciting. Uh I'm actually far more sympathetic to this idea, the one storyline that uh, had no place, but I'm more sympathetic to it. This idea that Laura, who is the granddaughter, like her grandmother, was having family pressure to marry someone else besides the man that she really wants to marry. I think that's actually a true story. It's still something that happens today with people whose families care about such things. So I was slightly more sympathetic to that happening. Did they have to pay the money back in the end? No. No, they were given it as a gift for being so cute and precocious. Yeah, so uh, Laura gives them the money as a gift, says keep it as a reward for finding this. However, Ellen's mother, thank God, is again wonderful. It says that they have to give what's left of the money to Mark because they stole the money from him in the first place by keeping him out of this binder's fee. So Mark did end up with money and they didn't get to spend any more, but they'd already spent more than half of uh, what they had been, what they split up. So about $75 each. The date on the letter was 1923 or something like that. Was that correct? I think so, yeah. So would dollar bills printed in the 20s be accepted in stores in America in the Probably, 80s? yeah. I can't believe Wing hasn't researched this. This strikes me as the kind of thing that Wing would know or research. Whenever we see programs from the 20s in Britain, for example and somebody hands somebody else money, it doesn't look like money. They look like massive promissory notes or... Yeah, Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, yeah. So I'll, I'll assume 
the the 80s had the 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 non-forgery techniques had moved on since the 20s so the notes would be considerably different i'm surprised that the the 200 dollars that was in there would even be recognized as dollars by a 12 year old girl okay so two things here first of all you guys have weird money anyway, so no one would recognize it as money no matter what. Second of all, I'm looking at... What, you mean we have different pictures on our notes because we, we have creativity and difference and and pretty money. Don't you have people on your notes too? You just have colors. Second, I'm looking at pictures of uh, bills from the 20s and 30s, and they are recognizably money. I mean, obviously, they don't have all of the anti-counterfeiting stuff that we have now, but it's still recognizably a $20 bill, basically, which is what all of this money is in the box, apparently. Uh, which actually, I find a little weird, because I feel like $20 bills weren't actually super common for people, especially gardeners in the 1920s, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, because surely he'd have earned it in dollar bill increments and socked that away, so it should be making it rain, like on the Wakefield Strike at Rich. Right. He could have been turned it in for 20s, I guess, but that's not something that happens, whatever. But yes, so theoretically, they could have used this money just like real money. I do think the point you made in the recap was really sound, though, Raven, that it's actually probably worth quite a bit more to turn in to a collector mm. than it would be to just spend it as money. Yeah, definitely. I'm pretty sure that a twenty um, a twenty dollar bill from the twenties, for example, would probably fetch about a couple of hundred dollars by itself. Well, so I have found a twenty dollar nineteen twenty eight note that is on sale for it's very fine condition. So kind of hit or miss whether what they found would be in good condition or not. But this one is currently on sale for six hundred dollars. Yeah, there we go. So I would say in the 80s, maybe three or four hundred dollars yeah. for a yeah. good version. So, yeah, you're right. It would have been worth a lot more if they turned the damn things in. Yeah, I guess there was no eBay or Internet to check these things. <laughs> That's true. But coin collecting was huge. So mm. you'd think that they would have at least heard of people paying money for collecting collections. Mm. I mean, I remember even in the late 90s and early 2000s, the coin collecting books. Uh, like in an actual bookstore, the books about collecting, not the holders that you put the coins in, were had whole sections because I used to used to have to organize them. So yeah, it was such a huge thing. They really should have thought about that. Though I guess if you don't collect coins, maybe as a twelve year old girl, you don't think about that. But oh well. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> weirdness all around. But yes, it was all wrapped up in a neat bow that they not only helped someone, uh, they got to keep the money. That Mark got his money. Everyone was happy. They weren't actually thieves, except they were. Ta-da! <laughs> and yet, still not as terrible as keeping Ugh. secrets. So will I, Raven, take that one away? <sighs> Do I really have to talk about this book? I don't even think it's a book. I think at the very most, it's it's an incident. It's a bithiguk. It's a what? <laughs> bithiguk. Oh, God. Don't oh, you Jesus. start as well. I'm not going to get... Ithig. Ithig. Oh, it's, it's hurting my brain even thinking about it. So let's start off with this one then. So first of all, you've got a secret from the father. And the secret is possibly the most inane thing I've ever heard described as a secret. I think I would have had more enjoyment from the book if... Daddy Wakefield had taken the girls to a pizza restaurant and his secret was that he had testicular cancer. I think that would have been more entertaining as a read because Jessica's first reaction 
to being told this secret when she thought she was getting a, a lovely trip around Europe was basically, what the fuck is this bollocks? And she had to have Elizabeth chivvy her along and go, oh, don't worry, this could be fun. And in the space of a chapter, it turned out it was fun just because they like talking crap at each other. And I don't, from that very premise, I was turned off this book because it didn't seem, it, it, the whole time, the, the, the family and the girls and the school gave too much credence to what was going on. Not one person went, hang on, this is shit. Apart from the substitute teacher later on when she worked out the secret and went, oh yeah, it's just having anything in the middle of the thing. Yeah, it's pretty simple really. But before then, everyone was just captivated by this. Oh, they have a secret. What is it? Maybe they're born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Oh, just behave. I don't care. You're absolutely right. Because I remember when uh, Pig Latin hit in my school, uh, someone's older sister explained it to her and she explained it to a couple of friends uh, during what the Americans would call homeroom. I can't remember what we call it because I read too much American media and have blocked out my childhood. Free, free periods? No, it wasn't a free period. House house period? House period? No. Let's just go with homeroom since I don't okay. know what it's called in England anymore. Um, and, you know, a couple of us lent in a bit closer and went, what's that? And then they explained it and we went, oh, all right. And then we tried out a few swear words and went, oh, that's what that sound like. And then we all moved on. Like, it didn't even make it through the entirety of the register. We all went, all right, OK, I get it. Yeah. So did you watch EastEnders last night? So are you actually saying you, as a child at school, had your own ethic moment? You lived the ethic dream, for, a, for a, albeit for one fleeting moment. But the ethic dream was alive in you. Yeah, but I think it only lasted a couple of names in the register. Like, I basically was listening to how Pig Latin worked, and then I called my name, and then I lost interest in Pig Latin. And my surname begins with C, so it really didn't last long at all. I'm kind of curious, did you not have a Pig Latin stage there, Raven? I um I had a Pig Latin course. I did GCSE Pig Latin. No, I, I don't yeah. believe you. <laughs> Didn't you actually do real Latin? I did, yes. I did GCSE <laughs> Latin, yes. Oh, aren't you fancy? Yes, uh, I, I was, um, yes. Let's see. Um, trying to think. Um, like, uh, Canis et we are ululawis. There we go. That's Latin for the dog is in the street moaning like a ghost. Don't ask me why that. Well, there we go. Semper tenax, Latin for ever holding fast. Named after, this is how posh my school is. School logo was a badger because when they broke ground to build the school, which I think is bullshit given that my school was a converted estate, badger came running out of its hole, leapt at the workman who was digging the hole, bit onto his finger and would never let go. The guy had to amputate his finger and my fucking upper class school went, yes, let us honour his lost finger by celebrating the badger that would never let go. Sempaternax! Down with the working class and their fingers. Nice. And we've lost wing. She's muted herself. Did you know Latin for old woman is anus? <laughs> You're not helping get wing back. She's just sitting there crying now. That's all right. We had a lot of very fun lessons talking about anuses. It was most enjoyable. Anyway, I did not have a pig Latin phase, no. Um, I didn't learn what pig Latin is until far later than it was going to enthrall me, if you know what I mean. Interesting. I mean, I don't know that we were enthralled with it. We definitely came up probably around the same age, late single digits, early preteen stuff. So it's interesting to me that you did not have, you had a brief ethic moment yourself. Yeah. Huh. Well, maybe that's why I felt so, 
offended by this book because I, there was no cultural. I couldn't even say, well, I had a brief flirtation with Pig Latin when I was 10 or whatever. There was nothing to me that made it, that gave it any sort of frame of reference in my life. So it just, yeah, it was just lost on me, I think. Also, in the early chapters, if you ever find yourself empathizing with Jessica, you know this is a terrible book or you need to kill yourself, one of the two. But when she's like, Oh, I thought I thought we were going to Europe, and instead you're just telling me this silly secret. You can't help but go, yeah, too right, Jess. This is crap. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the Europe thing was a, a little overreaction, but you know, if uh, if Elizabeth can't get a horse, then I don't know why Jessica thinks she's going to be going to Europe. Well, if you had mine and Wing's background in point horror, you would know that everyone goes to Europe all of the time because every time you start a point horror from the 1990s. It starts with some 16-year-old being home alone after mummy and daddy have gone off to Europe for a second honeymoon and she is left home alone to deal with the horror. So that's probably why Jessica assumes that they're going to Europe. She's like, well, literally everyone else's parents have gone to Europe. Well, I'm hoping that in point horror that going to Europe was actually a euphemism for going to the local swingers club. Right. Like, well, sorry. more like a <laughs> sweet valley euphemism. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Jessica, uh, darling, I, we're going to Europe. No, no, it's, um, it's going um, it's, to Europe sorry. was ridiculous. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I think, no, it, the Sweet Valley version is we're going to a party on a boat, I believe. <laughs> good point. That's actually something we learned last time, so good yes. point. Uh, I agree that going to Europe was kind of a ridiculous assumption on her part. However, I do also agree that this actual secret was way too fucking built up for what it was. Like, he spent but- multiple times in a buried treasure teasing them with the secret only to teach them a language that people can learn on their own and makes no sense whatsoever it's horrible i mean in a way the one redeeming thing that i'd probably say about this book which is not a redeeming thing at all it was just i'm clutching on straws because i'm i'm trying to be ever the optimist was if you come out of the book with the premise that yes this sequence is stupid and yes this the language is ridiculous and everyone's reaction to it is massively overblown. It's one of the first times that I believe the reactions of people like Amy and Lila as 12-year-old girls, because it was childish and stupid, their reactions over something as ridiculous as this. So, in a way, that did actually work for me. And later on, when the dad was saying, when Ned was saying, I'm sorry, girls, I didn't expect to put you in such a ridiculous predicament as the the one you got in. I thought it was just a bit of fun between us. I can sort of, I can give him that as as he was just trying to share something fun with his daughters. But the whole build-up and the language and it it was, uh, uh, yeah, I've gone again. Sorry, I've gone into the future. I think it's rubbish. Like, if that was just a side plot in another book, I think it would have been really cute. Because it is a great kind of thing for Ned to want to have some sort of little bond with his kids. Though I do find it a little weird that he just wants to have it with the twins and not with Steven. Like, Steven is also your kid, but okay, whatever. That aside, uh, I think that's very sweet. And I do think it was absolutely believable that as soon as Elizabeth and Jessica had a secret, their quote-unquote best friends 
freaked out for being left out. Like, that's a super believable response, especially at that age. Like, people do get really worried about missing out on things or that they're being dumped by their friends and a variety of things. So I did think that was believable. It's the fact that this was the cornerstone of the book. This is plot A, and plot A has nothing that makes it so, so deeply boring. Like, there's nothing going on here. I'm also not sure I believe that the twins have never had a secret language before. They are with the exception of the twins from the book Twins by Carolyn Cooney, which you can hear recapped uh, this month at a podcast over at pointhorror.com. With the exception of those twins, Jessica and Elizabeth are the twiniest twins who ever twinned. And so the fact that we're supposed to believe they've never had a secret language together is impossible for me to believe. That was such a thing for siblings to do in the 80s in general, but especially for twins. One of the other things that annoyed me about this book was it seemed to be the, uh, I'd like to call it a milestone book in the series, in that I think that a committee somewhere must have went, right, okay, we're 12 books in now. We now need to go over again the relationships between everyone and introduce everyone again and make sure that everything is very, very clear for the new readers who haven't got time to read the the 11 books that come before it. Because while I was doing the recap, and and even when I I first started it, it starts off very, very quickly. It starts off with, I think the line is something like, so I wonder what the secret is. And you're like, bang, well, I'm right in there. That's, That's okay. And then recapping it on the Kindle. The first chapter was just banter between the family, and it wasn't. They didn't even mention anything until like fourteen percent of the way through the book. It was all like, "And here's Stephen. Stephen is the brother, and he eats loads of stuff, and he plays basketball. Oh, Dad's home. Uh, Dad's home now, but the mum isn't home because she's an interior decorator, and she's doing this and that and the other. And I found it really irritating that." We had to have so much exposition, if you like, just to explain stuff that we already knew. Um, although I could see why they needed it or why they thought they needed it, at least, because they didn't have the confidence to believe that the fans of the series wouldn't be able to pick these things up as, as quickly as they maybe should. So uh, there's been a little bit of recapping before this point, but I think you're right. This is the book where it really turned the corner into they're going to treat it as a serial uh, in which case you fall into that serial syndrome where there's always a little bit of recap section. With something like The Babysitter's Club, it's pretty much within the fandom this kind of joke that chapter two is the recap chapter. You could skip it ever because all it does is recap everything you know about the club. And maybe they'll throw in a couple different descriptions or do one based on their outfits instead of their, what they like and dislike, but it's the same recap every time. Rechapter. Yes, the rechapter. Uh, we've hit the point in Sweet Valley Twins that it is clearly a successful serial and it's going to be treated as such. So my guess is from here on out, there will be more and more recapping of who everyone is uh, and how they're related because now they expect people to pick it up from whatever is the newest book on the bookshelf. And they might go back and reread the others later, but that initial book coming in is what the publishers are trying to hook them with. I think towards the end where I'm up to in my read through, I've come to a shuddering halt. I'm on the Freddy Krueger-esque miniseries uh, from about 101 onwards, I think. But if, I don't know whether it's just because I'm reading it and not recapping at the same time, but it feels like these books, once they get to 100, they're like, no, you really should have read a couple. We're not going to mm. spoon feed stuff to you. We're not going to recap anything. And I hope so. Well, that was the point I made in my recap, um, or I'm making in my recap as I'm writing it now, um, is that I hope with once they got more confidence in, in their own <clears throat> readership, 
that they would be more confident and have to handle that less frequently or even if it was just they were so well versed at the recapping they've <laughs> they've distilled it to a fine art and can get it done in half a page rather than an entire chapter that's what i would give you like it <clears> really <throat> should have been refined out because the problem is uh from a publication standpoint at this point when you're thinking about the new book you're not thinking about your current readership <laughs> they're gonna buy it no matter what because it has francine pascal's name on it or it's a part of the sweet valley series or whatever, uh, what they're thinking of is hooking new readers, in which case you do want to have a recap to get them into this specific book. And you kind of see it in, in actual book series now where you're, they run three or four, or 10 or 12. But with these books, especially in the 80s and 90s, the idea was for them to run 100 or 200. So they were always looking at hooking more and more readers. So yes, you would think that they could stop recapping because they have such a great reader base already, and they can assume that people will go back and read from the beginning, and mostly they will after they've read that first book, whatever the first book is. So the first book they see could be number 10. The first book they see could be a number 120. They have to be able to uh, it has to be accessible to new readers. It's an interesting business model, a publication model, but for people who read the whole series, it does get super annoying to have to read the same thing over and over and over again. It's less annoying when you read it because you can basically skip, you know, where it says you'll see the sentence, Elizabeth and Jessica were identical, and you're like, skip. And then you can just skim read until you see a sentence that ends, best of friends. That's what I used to do even as a kid. But when you recap it and you're sort of absorbing every word as opposed to just whizzing through to get to the story, it's a bit more tedious, really, isn't it? You're right. <sighs> well, yes. Uh, well, can we not talk about Ithig anymore? It's okay. a thoroughly depressing, we depressing book. Move on to Bleak Valley. Jessica Wakefield doesn't exist. She's merely a construct in the mind of Elizabeth Wakefield, an abused only child trapped in the basement by unloving parents. Elizabeth Wakefield, whose imagination spawned the whole of Sweet Valley in an attempt to escape her lonely, imprisoned, apocalyptic clusterfuck life. The name for Elizabeth's altered reality? This desolate nightmare, the purple underbelly of a cracked psyche, the dark world of her mind and soul? Bleak Valley. Yes, so okay. shall we move over to Bleak Valley and yes. work out how all of these tie into it? And I suppose if we're going chronologically start with one of the gang i think this one is the one where elizabeth has been injured um from the abuse at her home and she is on crutches and she's trying to make that more well less victimy so she's come up with a story as to why jessica would be on crutches and and then she wants Elizabeth or Jessica to sort of save her from this so she creates the disabled character of Pamela and I think that's sort of how this ties into Bleak Valley I think she's the one with the injury obviously from the abuse 
Well, that's a nice thought. Um, I think putting her on crutches is a bit OTT for the family. I don't think she'll have any crutches. I don't think she'll have had any medical attention. I think if she has injured herself, it'll be something like in the cupboard under the stairs. She's trapped her finger or she's broken a finger trying to get out or something like that. And maybe this is the injury has, has led her to sort of to think on how a more serious injury would affect things. If you're looking at it as Jessica's injury is reflective of Elizabeth's in the Bleak Valley reality, uh, Jessica gets so much attention and so much taken care of and everything caters to her at least the first couple days. And how different must that feel for Bleak Valley Elizabeth, who doesn't even get help taking care of whatever this injury is. She's just left on her own always. Because uh, there's no way they really could take her to get care. At most, they would slip it themselves because... They can't let her see. I mean, people don't even necessarily know that they have a kid in Bleak Valley, uh, what we've come up with before. So there's no way she'd actually get to go to a doctor. So that everyone helping Jessica and bending over backwards to take care of her and carrying her books and wanting to make special dispensation for her. Elizabeth is so needy and so in need of help and someone to take care of her that, of course, any minor injury for her part, even the minorest injury, uh, would lead to or could lead to her having this daydream of people caring about her. Yeah, and I think she was probably thrown down the stairs. That's... That's where I think she got her injuries, and I don't think it's just limited to a sprained ankle. Is she ever allowed up the stairs? Though my first thought was falling down the stairs too, but I don't know that I've ever pictured her being allowed upstairs. I don't know. I think she has to do chores because there's uh, several references. I don't know whether it's in the books we've read so far of Elizabeth straightening Jessica's bed. So I reckon she probably has to at least straighten up the bedrooms and stuff like that, you know. I, I had a definite different picture for that, to be fair. Okay. I mean, the picture I had was that she wasn't actually reflective of, of Jessica in this book. She was actually reflective of Pamela, in that Pamela is constantly told by her parents that she can't do this and she can't do that and she shouldn't be doing this. And there's a special place for her, which is obviously the special school and not the cupboard under the stairs where she is actually living. I also saw the fact that Pamela was given a heart issue. Could be that Elizabeth herself feels like her heart is breaking because her parents don't love her. And I also thought that stuff like when we get to the events that are happening in the all-inclusive sports day, we have the, the chance to write a song and have your voice heard, which is something that's denied to her in general. And we also have making beds, which is so out of place, it's bizarre. But that comes to me, maybe she thinks that's quite exotic because she sleeps in a basket or something like that. So uh, I thought it was a very, very sad indication of, of where she is. I like that. That's a really great addition to it. And by great, I mean terrible, obviously. <laughs> Sorry to bring everyone down again. <laughs> We don't have much to say about this one now. You just—I mean, Bleak Valley is meant to be bleak, so every every time we're like, "Oh, now we're all depressed." Good times. Uh, but I think, yeah, both of those are really excellent theories for one of the gang. Even the title, Elizabeth, is so desperate to belong somewhere that she would love to be one of the gang, no matter what it takes to be one of the gang. Yeah, and I—I I must say, I, I do like Raven's theory that. Pamela as Elizabeth is fighting to go to regular school and interact with other people her age and the Bleak Valley equivalent is 
just the cupboard under the stairs and she's not allowed to talk to anyone because she doesn't deserve it because there's something wrong with her. Mm. <sighs> Another reason why we're not having kids. Too depressing. <laughs> well, we're all depressed about that. Yep. Buried treasure. Obviously, Elizabeth is the buried treasure in this scenario. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, that's all I've got. Elizabeth is the buried <laughs> treasure. So I'm glad it was nicely yeah. done in that drop-away line there. Yeah. Mic drop. So, so Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's in a box, and she was married to a gardener? What? I'm very confused now. See, I'm glad that Wings come up with something clever, because my only thought was... Oh, she got a concussion this week, and this is sort of like her bizarre. She's like listening to her mum, who's probably drunk on the sofa watching crap daytime TV that always has this will we, won't we, shall we marry the working classes, that kind of melodramatic nonsense. And poor little Elizabeth's got a concussion, and it's all sort of swimming together in her head and marrying up with, with Sweet Valley. That does tie nicely into her being the injured party in the previous book. See, concussions are serious business, people. It just keeps going. Uh, I know that Dove will appreciate that statement. Concussion, the gift that keeps on giving. So, yes, I do like that, too, that what she's hearing is kind of filtering down into the stories, because that's what we really what Bleak Valley is. And whatever she experiences from a distance, she works into her stories. I do think, yeah, mostly it's that Elizabeth is the treasure and she's locked in a box and wants someone to find her. But I also think, too, that just like these magical women keep showing up to save them or fix them or something, that she is, at this point in life, still has some sort of hope that someone will come save her. Maybe her real mother, maybe some beautiful stranger, but someone is going to come and save her from this terrible life. That's a good point. That's a good point. And so the metaphor is, like, if they found her in that box, just like the money, they would really like her if they just had her in their life kind of thing. Exactly. They would keep her. Another way you could come at this is that um, Elizabeth, there's a big subplot in the book about being blamed for something that you've not necessarily done. And that could be something that's very close to Elizabeth's heart in that she'll be blamed for a number of things. I don't know, for ruining her parents' life, uh, for not doing the dishes properly if she is doing chores. Or there'll be plenty of things, plenty of perceived reasons for the abuse to occur, which are all specious and ridiculous, obviously. But, but in her mind, she could feel like in, in, in a certain way she deserves these things. So it's nice to have her maybe rebelling slightly against that in, in having everyone blaming the girls for theft when it's not theft of the school money but deep down she still thinks she deserves what she gets because it actually is theft at one level that's a nice nice meta look at that i like that a lot especially the layers of is it theft is it not theft very nicely done raven the other thing that ties into the theft subplot at least this class money subplot uh, is that at one point Amy and Elizabeth get locked into a closet, uh, which actually could definitely tie into this covered under the stairs thing. But specifically, they get locked into a closet by the terrible Mr. Nydick, which <laughs> even, you know, even this terrible things that could or could not be happening to her working in and even in her special safe world of Sweet Valley, uh, she's getting locked away by people who mean her harm. Mm. Mr. Nydick, the spectre of abuse. That's Mr. Nydick, is that, that's what he is. He's the actual abuse <laughs> that she is facing, which is why he keeps up to... That's why in the first book it was like, have you heard? Mr. Nydick's been doing some dodgy stuff to the kids. 
Page one. And yet it's still around and locking kids in cover. Actually, is Nidek her father? Because if the book opens with, um, have you heard he's getting fired, even though he's been here for years, that could be like the mum was going, I want you to leave. And it was like little Elizabeth getting all hopeful that he might go. And um, as is often the case, he stayed. Maybe so. So I would like to say, I don't think it's only Bleak Valley Ned who is being abusive. I think Bleak Valley... Yes. Mother blanked blanked at her name. Alice. Alice. I don't think it's just Bleak Valley Ned who's being abusive. Bleak Valley Alice is just as complicit in everything that's happening in Bleak Valley. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at how shit Alice is as a parent in Sweet Valley, you can only imagine how truly awful she must be in Bleak Valley for this to be a marked improvement. I think I'd like to see the um, Alice and Ned being the idealised parents of, Sweet, of Bleak Valley Elizabeth and the entire teaching staff at Sweet Valley Middle School being the abusive parents who are useless and locking them in cupboards and doing this and doing that and just being awful in general because not one of them has got any redeeming features. So the Bleak, the bleak Valley um, Ithig, I think the entire story itself is just bleak. I don't think we need to tie it into Bleak Valley too much. It's just made my life incredibly bleak, much, much bleaker for having read it. I think it's a holdover from her concussion. The injury in one of the gang, I I think words are getting jumbled up in her brain as they're being said to her. And that's where a thing is. And instead of being upset that she can't understand her parents while they're barking out orders at her, um, because obviously she's going to do it wrong. If she if she got it wrong before when she could hear perfectly and comprehend perfectly, she's definitely going to cock up now since it's not making sense because her brain's a bit loopy from that head injury. So she has to turn it into something positive. This is like a secret language that me and dad have with Jessica. Mm, that's a good point. I think continuing from that or building upon it, it could even be her dad getting completely drunk. And angrily banging on the door and just speaking complete gibberish in that slurred, slightly violent sounding, spitting way that um, obnoxious drunks tend to do. Yeah, and belligerent. Her, belligerent, yeah. And her having to justify that with, as you say, no, this is a secret that me and dad have. This is not something that's awful. This is. I agree. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, this is not something that's awful. This is actually a, a moment that we share i agree i think you even build on it further that uh in the sweet valley version even within this perfect family if they are this extrapolation of what she thinks a perfect family would be even within this perfect family she then has this extra secret little circle of protection between her and jessica and her dad uh so she even is building from this horrible thing that's happening in bleak valley building an even extra bit of safety for her uh, which again shows how desperate she is to have companionship and someone that wants to share things with her and various things like that you also get yet again another beautiful woman showing up to rescue her in this case it is a substitute teacher who comes in uh, replaces one of her favorite teachers though pretty much all of her teachers are her favorite teacher at this point 
So I kind of take that with a grain of salt. But anyway, this teacher shows up. She teaches herself a thing without anyone needing to tell it. So Elizabeth doesn't even have to break a secret, really, to help her out. And then she's super grateful for Elizabeth for her friendship, which was basically based on a 30-second conversation. So again, here's a woman who's come in, chosen Elizabeth from a crowd to talk to, uh, befriended her in 30 seconds, and is super grateful and has secrets with her. So again, Elizabeth from Bleak Valley waiting to be rescued by some one anyone but specifically a young beautiful mother figure yeah an adult a a decent adult how about this this might be a little too far a little bit of a stretch but how about bleak valley ned's taking himself a mistress who's also quite obnoxious and drunk but who when alice is out scoring crack or whatever alice goes and does um he brings this woman into the house and this woman has discovered Elizabeth under the stairs and she's also in love with Ned Bleak Valley Ned so isn't sharing the secret about town but maybe slips a biscuit under the door Aww. So, I can see that yeah and then she is I, this beautiful woman yes because then with the secret that they have and that she doesn't betray the secret that they have by by telling them about telling them about Ithig but when maybe when the woman herself is is speaking, you think maybe that's reflective of the fact that she's just got drunk with with Ned herself, and they're just all talking gibberish outside the door. Sad. Elizabeth had a moment of hope, and yet it was ripped away cruelly. Mm. As I say, that might be a little bit too much of a stretch, but I like it though. I don't know. I don't think there's there's a possibility of going too far in Bleak Valley. <laughs> that's true. It's a dark and scary place. It is. Have we run out of stuff to talk about? I think we're out of Bleak Valley stuff, mostly because Keeping Secrets was not really a book. <laughs> that is true, yes. It was, a, it was a situation. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Sweet Valley Online. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes on our website at sweetvalley.online. Come talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Thanks again to Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast for our music. We'd love it if you subscribe, rate, and review us at your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.